Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guest who they are. So, who are you? Hello, my name is Alexi Toliopoulos and... Um, I guess I'm a multi-hyphenate in the, <laughs> in the creative arts. And perhaps the most interesting thing about me is I absolutely love movies. Really? Yes. Oh, well, finally. Finally, you're going to talk about that yes. because I know people are like, when is Alexi finally going to talk about his love of movies? <laughs> well, you know, I, you caught me dead to rights. It's mm. who I am. It's I deep within my bones. Not beyond the marrow too far, you will see those liquid DVD coursing through my body. <laughs> okay. So we were joking off air before we started, like it, that we would start and you would refuse to talk about comedy or movies. And I was quite fascinated by what that conversation might actually be about. But yeah. let's start with movies because it is so integral to your life, your personality, your purpose, you know. <laughs> My Certainly. mission on earth, probably. <laughs> it is, though. It feels more than somebody saying, yeah, I like movies. There is something around your, not just love of them personally, not just the fact that you were like, you know, in a, and we'll get to explore, you know, how movies have intersected in your life in a professional way, but like just as an advocate for movie making itself, much yeah. like a Nicole Kidman short film they might play at the start of a movie viewing experience to tell you all about the love of cinema. You live that life. You live that Nicole Kidman loving cinema life. It's my code. It's what I live by. Yeah, um, I, yeah I, it's, it is true, like my greatest passion. It's all, I think it always has been. And uh, it really, it's kind of, it's so silly to say, but I think it's kind of, it, it really is my mission on earth, I think, is to like celebrate cinema, celebrate the art form. And really, truly, I believe this deeply, like to help connect people to the movies that they will love. And I think that weirdly, you know, I do a lot of other things, like I said, I'm a multi-hyphenate, but as silly as it is, I think my celebration of cinema is probably the most important thing that I do. And I'm putting quotations around that, but I actually do believe it. I'm going to reverse those quotations. <laughs> I'm going to strike the quotations from the records. <laughs> nobody. No, I'm glad you did that. Because even though it might seem like nobody but us is hearing this and people wouldn't have heard the mm -hmm. quotations you did with your fingers, mm -hmm. we are filming it. There was evidence of you. Like, you know, if people had wanted to go back to the tape, they would have gone, there was quotations. Uh, Your Honour. We're redacting it. We're redacting the quotations. <laughs> I think... The, there was a line before that that I find almost more interesting than the conclusion we got to, which is this idea of connecting people to movies that they themselves would like. Because this says, speaks something. I think this is very interesting, Alexi, because obviously movies are just, you know, or film or whatever it is, like, you know, big stories told on big screens, wow. those sort of – we all understand, like, what we're talking about. That's right? my new terminology as well, big stories on the big screen. Well, it's not even, you know, some of them are little stories on the big screen, and that's okay too. Okay, Although, Will, you give me a run so for my money the way you're connecting we're, with these <laughs> topics. <laughs> we're getting, we're going down a rabbit hole too quickly here. But I'm interested in the, the this, I, I guess, as a, as a, 
in movies are all sorts of different things, right? You know, they can be absolutely big blockbuster Tom Cruise style movies through to, you know, very small stories like told in much smaller ways. And they can, yeah, so the idea that movies themselves are for everyone is really only for a select few who've just gone, no, 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 I am into <laughs> movies themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas for other people, it's about what sort of movie do you like and your experience of the movies will be based on people recommending you the right sort of movies. And we, I know this is a long run up, but I'm sorry, I, <laughs> I am trying to get to a point, which is we currently live in this algorithmic world of suggestion where everything we go to now has some function that says, if you watch this, you might also like this. If you watch this, you might also like this. One of the things I think we're going to lose from people not sharing their accounts is I like sharing like accounts because sometimes someone else watches something on my account that I'm like, I get something thrown into my algorithm that I actually might enjoy. Because it turns out I don't just enjoy things that are like the one thing that I chose to watch once, you know. So in a world of algorithmic recommendation, the fact that you have like your passion is that I, I'm interested in that and just I want you to talk more about that now that I've talked for so long in the run up to that question. <laughs> well, yeah, I think um, it kind of what it is for me when I talk about the idea of connection, I think it is really about helping people like down the pass and through the gateway. Like I think everyone at one point in their life encounters like that artistic gateway that they walk through. And there's a lot of people that maybe stay at that gate and just admire what's there because it can be quite intimidating to go go forth and to kind of explore. And I think that what I try to do when I talk about film and when I, you know, have done all these like movie podcasts and like film, I don't really say film critic, but it's like, you know, celebration of cinema is kind of what I prefer or cinematic sommelier because I like to <laughs> assign people things due to who, like from their tastes and stuff. So but that is what it is. Mm. It's like you asking you, what do you feel like tonight? Exactly. You know, that's great. I love it. And so I think it's like about trying to help people in a way that is, you know, I, I think sometimes for a lot of people, especially in this country, there's like a bit of like a guard up to the arts, mm -hmm. like people. And what is that, do you think? Where, where does that come from? Well, I have many theories. I would say Good. part of it to go, you know, reactionary <laughs> straight away. I think that there is rampant anti-intellectualism <laughs> anti uh, passed down from perhaps conservative governments that spout patriotism, but then they do not want a healthy art system, which I think would help people feel... Uh, feel patriotic if they had art that they could connect to from their own country. Um, and so, yeah, I am a radical in that regard. <laughs> um, so I think there is like a lot of like anti-intellectualism. I think that kind of puts people's barriers up to art and so not willing to explore further to kind of just tap onto the surface. So what I try to do is I try to, I guess you know, beckon people forth, use like my infectious love of cinema. Cause I, I recognize that my passion for cinema is it spreads. It's not just like contained to me. And I think that's like what my unique gift is in talking about movies to kind of help them unpretentiously discover and to help them 
start their path and to help kind of spread how cool mm. movies are, basically. So, to like, a, you're essentially a culture super spreader. I hope so. I hope yeah. so. And I would love you to be my contact tracer to figure out everyone or everyone that I've given the bug to that's passed down. I am patient zero in a way. But I think, you know, you know, now when I was growing up, it was Margaret and David were on TV every mm. week talking about movies. I used to watch their shows, both versions of it. Uh, and it was a huge impact to me. And that was kind of like... At, as and at this stage, sort of, are you, when you say young, how mm. when you say how young are you, do you think when you're watching this? Like when you're first watching this, like are you so young that you've not seen any of the movies that they're actually talking about? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I would say to a degree, but I've always been interested in films. Like my parents were interested in movies. My mom was like a probably was a cinephile at a certain point in life, maybe not so much anymore, but um, it was something that I was always very interested in, like in the, I think when I was a little kid, part of it would have been like, I loved storytellers, I loved movies, I was a only child, so I think a lot of, you know, a lot of my life was put up to my own imagination and like mm-hmm. finding storytelling and stuff. And so for me, it would have been like seeing those films that were like a portal to another world, your stuff like Star Wars. And then you see Star Wars, then you see Indiana Jones. You're like, hang on a second. There's one guy that's in both of these things. What's (laughs) going on here? These aren't real. Something's happening. And you kind of have that growth from there. And then for Uh me, it just kind of never stopped exploring. I've like had the fascination of like needing to go further to find more, to discover more. And then when I was a teenager was when it was really... I'm very, very lucky, I'll say, because I had my angsty movie phase before social media existed. So, like, all the kind of, like, you know, the cringy film boy, film bro stuff that people go through in, like, their early to to mid-20s, I had when I was, like, 13, 14 years old. Like, I'm 13 years old. I'm watching Taxi Driver. I'm watching, watching like, Bad Lieutenant because my mom was like, oh, you loved Goodfellas? you got to check out the other stuff these guys did and it's like wow you love Harvey Keitel he's got this movie from a few years ago let's watch Bad Lieutenant together and so like I went through all of that quite young and then it never had to transfer directly to my work of like all the I mean you know it does I still love all those guys but you know all that kind of like film bro stuff is like hidden in my past and because the IMDB message boards have been removed none of the evidence that I was that person are out there yeah, I think that we should, like, if we're going to go forward keeping the internet, and I assume we're stuck with it from now on, I feel like we should have, like, a just an erase every 10 years. You know what I mean? Like, we're going to wipe just, the slate. Just a general, we all get to start fresh. <laughs> yeah, there's a few things I want off there these days as well. Um, yeah, okay. So you love movies early on mm-hmm. in life. Where are you living? Like paint a little picture of what young Alexi's life looks like other than <laughs> the movies. Uh, well, I grew up in inner West Sydney uh, mm. in a very Greek neighborhood and like kind of Mediterranean area. I grew up in like Leichhardt, Dulwich Hill. Uh, and I grew up mainly with my mom and my, my yaya, my mom and my yaya. Um, and so they were both, both very, very important to me, but you know, my dad was still in the picture and stuff and yeah, I just, it's, yeah, I don't know how else to say it. I was a little, I was a double mummy's boy. I had my mom right. and my grandma <laughs> living with me. 
<laughs> I mean, there's never been a less surprising origin story <laughs> yeah. for you than what you just said. Yeah, like, would you believe it? I was raised by women. <laughs> <laughs> But that is an interesting dynamic in the household and mm. obviously being the only child. Um, was it a – I don't know what the – culturally it's like in that situation, but are you – because of movies and these stories and being an only child, is there plenty of time where you are by yourself or is there an – are you being overmothered by the fact that you have two mothers in the house? I think it was a battle between those two things. Yeah. <laughs> it was a battle of being a little prince and then being the quasi-mother up in the tower. It was like my double life. So I was, tr- you know, I was, you know, uh, to have two strong Greek women, yeah. that default setting is unconditional love can be yeah. both a blessing and a curse. And I think that it was very overwhelming at times in my life. But also I'm very, very grateful for, you know, having their support and, uh, you know, they they really mean a lot to me, my mum, my, my grandma. I miss my grandma a lot. So, yeah. um, and but then I guess because I was the only child, it was like a lot of like kind of creative fantasy and like kind of just – I really – and to this day, I think um, – I am kind of an like an extroverted introvert. Like I really, I appreciate my time alone. I appreciate my downtime. I, and the, I think that a lot of it, especially in like the creative industry, you're in comedy. A lot of it is like I spend all my energy when I'm outside, and then when I come home, like I don't want to do anything. I just want to like sit and often not just watch a movie. I watch like the crappiest reality TV because I'm like I don't even need to think. I can just be completely absorbed and involved or not in, absorbed and involved in it to whatever degree I want. And it's where I just like, if I'm watching a movie, often I feel like I'm studying, even if it's like mm-hmm. an Adam Sandler movie or something. I'm like, this is study. This is me at work. So if I put on something that's so mindless, I can be like, oh, thank God. I can just appreciate all music. I listen to a lot of music as well. No, so I'm interested in that switching off process because as someone who got into comedy because I loved comedy, you know, and, and back before comedy was an industry, it was really a mystery, you know, and there wasn't all this available information about how it worked. There were so many guesses about how it all fit together. And I thought the best way to work all that out and be around it was to you know, get inside the building or, you know, uh, and try to work it out from the inside. <clears throat> After a while, regardless of, like how much you try to switch your brain off when you're watching comedy, it's hard not to watch it. Your brain just goes into trying to work out how it's happening mm-hmm. or like, and not in a, like, a, like when I, yeah. And not in a malicious way, your brain just is naturally mm-hmm. trained to do that. So like, I assume like if like there's a truffle hunting pig, like right, you can't just like take that pig out into a forest full of truffles and go, just don't sniff today, right? Yeah. Like the same senses still kick in, I imagine. Wow. You can't just say to Larry the drug dog, you know what, just if you, if you smell any pot, just let, walk by today. We're having, a, <laughs> we're having an easy day, right? So when it comes to comedy often or i'm a little like you some like tv it might be the crappest thing because i'm trying to find something that does mean my brain will switch off so has it has your love of movies sometimes spoiled watching a movie for you because your brain works like that or is it you just know not to engage in that process do you do you understand the question i'm trying to ask you mm. i'm very interested in 
when you love something, but you love it so much that it becomes kind of your job. Yeah. And then the fact that it's your job kind of spoils it for you. <laughs> oh man, it is true because like you dedicate, like I dedicated my life to cinema. I went to film school for many yeah. years and, uh, honestly, like in a way when I think about it, it's like, um, almost it's so sad it will break my parents heart to hear this put on the record but like comedy is like my backup plan and that's like because i didn't study anything else i'm like well i guess what can i do to get money immediately and start doing comedy stuff i guess it's like you know a film career is probably even the only thing less wise than a comedy career in this country um but i uh i mean that's great by the way like i mean the idea that comedy is your fallback yeah I, you know, I didn't study anything else. I, I didn't enjoy anything else in life. I was like, what else could I do? Um, but I think uh, it's so true. Like when you dedicate yourself to your passion, sometimes it can like, it's it, it doesn't stop being work ever. And so it, there are times where... I think it would have been a, like a, a time that I spoke to you in the last few years as well was during the lockdown. So a certain point where I, at the start, I was like, okay, I've got all this downtime. I'm going to either fill some gaps or watch some longer movies that I would never really put on otherwise. That kind of was like my first instinct. And then there was a certain point where I, the only movie I could enjoy was Beverly Hills Cop. And every other movie that I put on <laughs> pissed me off because it wasn't Beverly Hills Cop. And I was like, okay, what else is there? Even the Beverly Hills Cop sequels aren't Beverly Hills Cop. There's nothing else here. So I'm watching Midnight Run over and over, trying to get like that vibe. And I think it is like about those peaks and valleys when you're like in that passion, where there's sometimes where you're really vibing something, where you're like really finding passion and expression and finding celebration in everything. But then there can be those moments where like plateaus or you go down those valleys. And like, you know, recently I feel like I went through, it's like almost every year there's a cycle where sometimes where I go through a run of films that I'm like, oh my God, this, this sucks. What am I watching? I'm watching freaking like just crap that just feels so manufactured or doesn't connect or misses the mark. But then something will come back that will inspire, that will inspire you. And I think... You know, I really like this analogy you used of like a truffle hunting pig as well, because I think this is something that Cam James, who I do podcasts with, um, I ha- I know you know that I said that for the listener. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, and that's why I said nothing. I was being polite. We all we all got what was going on. I could have gone Cam James, of course, previous guest on the <laughs> previous show. Previous guest on the show. I almost <laughs> did that too. But, <laughs> and um, you're going to catch Cam and Lexi both uh, as guests on Fofop, which is also <laughs> one of my other podcasts. Look, to be honest, it's quite a small community. It's a small world. (laughs) We're a small world where we are all friends. Um, But I had, uh, uh, like, when you kind of reach that point, like Cam has been making fun of me Mm. as being like, um, almost like, a pervert in cinema that has reached his limits and now has to find like the real kinky stuff. Mm -hmm. Cause at the moment, like what I'm really, what I I can only find stuff now to really excite Mm. me that has to feel (laughs) really crazy or really interesting. So I'm trying to watch like a lot of like, um, 
regional cinema, like strange, like small town regional cinema, or oh, yeah. Bollywood. I'm exploring in now, like classic Bollywood, Hong Kong mm. cinema, uh, 1970s gay erotica. Like it's kind of the stuff that I'm going it through is now. Honestly, like a Pornhub menu now, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, just like this doesn't work anymore. Yeah. This doesn't work. I anymore. need to discover more. I'm going to the, the <laughs> utmost limit of what I can handle. <laughs> Yeah, what do the Amish do? Yeah. <laughs> What's movies for Amish, Amish people? What do they do? They read a book or something? <laughs> so that's interesting to me too, though, because when we think of movies, yeah, it's such a huge, like, simple term for a huge thing. And for most people, I guess, who are only seeing, like, a couple of movies a year, I mean, at a cinema in the traditional way we thought of movies, most people now are watching any form of movie they might watch in their homes. So talk to me even about that. Like, do you have, because I mean, you do all of those things, of course. Like, do you have a perfect environment to watch a movie? Does it depend on what sort of movie? How important is the environment to the movie, like, I mean, I went to the, you'd hate this, but mm-hmm. anyway, I went to the movies for the first time, like a t- couple of weeks ago, I went to the movies for the first, first time, time ever? Since, <laughs> yeah, since the pandemic. Yeah. I hadn't been to the movies since the pandemic. So three years, I guess, mm-hmm. like, you know, since I've been to a cinema and uh, went with our mutual friend, Justin Hamilton, wow. previous guest on the podcast. Yeah. Everyone knows Justin Hamilton mm-hmm. from comedy. I'm saying that for the people at home, not for you, Lexi. Who knows that? And now to share my story with Justin <laughs> Hamilton for the people at home, he's a friend of mine and one of my favourite film companions. So I know you're in good company. <laughs> but we went to see uh, the new Spider-Man uh, mm-hmm. multiverse movie and – it was great. Yeah. I, I loved I loved seeing that at the movies, mm-hmm. and like on the big screen, really added to the whole experience of, Absolutely. you know, enjoying a movie like that. I enjoyed it much more at the cinema than I would have enjoyed, you know, watching it at home like I have every, pretty much everything else in the last three years. So what, do you have a preferred environment or does it not matter to you because, like, for you it's about mm. the film itself? Well, allow me to put it to you in a comedic allegory for you. To me, <laughs> cinema is a church. And if you go to the cinema, it is you're worshipping at church, but it doesn't stop you from being a worshipper if you're praying at home <laughs> on your couch with whatever sound system and screen you have. I think that mm. – I think the barrier should be up. There should be – if. I don't, I'm not an elitist in the sense that you should only see movies in the cinema. I think wherever you can get it, you should get it. That's like wherever if you feel comfortable. Personally, I, I love to go to the movies. I love to go to the cinema. I love to go by myself to the cinema. And just like, you know, I love every aspect of it. Um, ideal settings. Let me paint this picture. Dark room. I love the darkened room. I love projection. I would love to see like a film just projected on a big wall, big. Mm-hmm. And I think to me, sound is really important now. I th- or always, you know, there's two parts to film. It's sound and vision com- coming together. I think sound is kind of like the key that can kind of, it's hard to replicate in a home setting. Uh, you know, but I have tried. I've got a nice sound system because I want it to be as close at home, especially because, like, you know, you so much of, like, when you're trying to discover stuff, it's at, it's in your own home court. It's, like, trying to find things, trying to – because you can't see everything on the big screen. There's retrospectives still need to try and make money, so you're not going to find, like, you know, the as many weird oddities on the big screen as you will unless you're seeking them or you have someone like me in your life that is – helping you find these things. Um, 
Yeah. So I, I think that it's got everything's got its merits. And most of my you can have a really transcendent film experience in the cinema, but I think you can also have that at home. Sometimes it just means you have to try to disconnect from other aspects of the world to focus in, uh, but it, it can happen. Do you remember what the first movie you ever saw at the cinema was? Uh, I believe it was The Lion King. It would have been The Lion King. Um, and that is still, I'm glad it was that film because that's still one that I do think is is like a high point for animation. And I think it's such a, it is communicating real depth of story to an audience of open-minded children. And I think that is something that I find quite fascinating still about that film. To yeah, point, I, I mean, even like the remake. I even liked the remake from a few years ago as well. I mean, that devalues your original point yeah, a okay. little. But Strike it from the record, I lied. So I was lying. <laughs> Uh, but you're right like that is uh, like that's a good starter if like if you want to like set a child out on a life of loving cinema it feels like such a gateway drug experience of like going like the i mean yeah that movie's a very well made animated movie the songs are great the story you know, is like Shakespearean, literally. Mm, literally. And, <laughs> but but that's great, right? For a kid, like, you know, to come in and, and see such an epic story told in such an epic way with like this epic soundtrack as well. Mm. Like, I mean, I you know, that's that's a good first time at the movies experience. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I can't I can't remember who took me. It probably would have been my mm. parents together or one of me, maybe my aunts or uncles. But I, it's something that I'm quite passionate about. I, I will yeah. tell you just because I, I think you'll enjoy you, yeah. Just because I think you'll enjoy this. So going to the movies wasn't, there was no cinemas around where I lived when I was growing up. So I was quite, you know, anyway, this was. Um, what cinema great did franchise. you go to? What cinema did you go to? I think it was like Terelgan. It was in the Latrobe Valley. So mm-hmm. it was like a good 45 minute hour sort of like drive to wow. go and like have a night at the cinema. So I remember it distinctly. Was it a single um, screen, like a picture palace or? Might have been a – like I reckon there was two. I cool. reckon they had two. And uh, I – okay, so I'll, I'll let you have a little guess. Oh, which yes. is, so It's a franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the movies in the franchise it could possibly be my – like amongst my top five movies of all time. Uh, that was not the movie in the franchise that I saw. In fact, I saw the movie in the franchise that is probably regarded to be – um, the worst movie out of the four movies, four movies. in the franchise. Okay. Um, uh, but I, I have great affection for it because it was the first time I ever went to the cinema. It stars a recently deceased uh, uh, rock and roll legend. Oh, my gosh. Whoa, okay, you throw me. Because originally I was like, oh, perhaps it's something like – you know, a Jaws sequel or an Indiana Jones. I was trying to work from your taste in some way. Rock and roll legend, recently deceased. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of rock stars Austra- that are dead Australia- now. I'll, I'll give you a clue. Mm-hmm. An Australian movie. An Australian movie? Yeah. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. Was it like Beyond Thunderdome? Mad Max colon yeah, Beyond, Beyond Thunderdome. Thunderdome. I love <laughs> yeah. Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> yes, but widely regarded as kind of not being the best of the but it is actually it's it's absolutely fine, Thunderdome. Mm, it's I ridiculous. Think it's great. But it's funny. Like it's yeah. it's 
yeah. I think it's, I mean, I think George Miller, he's such a, he's an interesting creative and I think his journey into creativity, into cinema is so fantastic because he is playing with like these big storytelling ideas that are communicating things that are quite complex or uh, either complex or very base storyline, primal storylines, but he's communicating them through the language, like the visual language of cinema in a way uh, through genre and a way through a cinematic language that audiences understand. I think genre is really important, something that I'm a really big proponent about because, you know, people can like sniff at genre or like hold their head up towards it or whatever or use it to categorically. But I actually think genre is really important because genre is a language uh, that audiences are completely fluent in that they're unaware that they're fluent in and so it's a language that they understand so if you communicate through genre they an audience is able to interpret that I think that's what he does really like quite nobly through his work he uses like familiar tropes but communicates them in a completely new visual way uh, that works. So I'm excited to hear that young Will was like really into Mad Max and especially Beyond Thunderdome I think it's really underrated yeah, I think, you know, the interesting thing about Thunderdome to me is I think that when you see Fury Road, you understand Thunderdome more because in the old days we didn't understand, I think, that what George Miller does, particularly with those Mad Max stories in universe, is like he's not looking for consistency in tone or story. They're each snapshots told in a different Tonally, like mm-hmm. each they've, now that you see all four movies, you realize that all four of them are different tonally. Yeah. Whereas I think when like Thunderdome was the third left hanging, people were like, "Oh, it went a bit kooky <laughs> in the third installment." Whereas when you see it as part of the four, you're like, "Oh, I get what he's doing." Like each of them is a different, and now we're seeing that a lot more in long form TV storytelling, where you might have an episode of like something that's quite serious become quite comedic, and we understand that language a mm. little bit more. But the thing I love about his movies, and I do think, because I'm not a particularly visual person, I like a story much more than I like the the visuals. And I think this is something that, even in my imagination, I've started reading some fantasy books again, and what I've forgotten about fantasy books is how much time they spend describing things. And I just am like, just tell me it's a castle. Like, I can imagine (laughs) what a castle looks like. I don't need to know. You're telling me how many turrets or whatever. I'm going to forget anyway. It's not going to help. I've already got a picture of a castle. You know what I mean? Like, do I have to draw this? You're scribbling in the margins going, okay, I've got to remember this shit later on. But what I do love about George Miller is his amazing capacity to say, like like Fury Road, and I love Fury Road, I think it's such a perfect film. And the thing I love about it is the story is essentially some people are going to drive up there and then they're going to turn around and they're going to drive back up mm-hmm. here. And like that's literally basically all that's going to happen in the movie. It's good. But – Every single shot of it tells you a story about that universe. So by the time you finish that unit, you know, every rule and idea of that universe without anyone ever turning to camera and saying, this is one of the rules of this universe. Like they just are told out in every detail of the story. Like everything has been thought through and everything that you're seeing is telling you something about that expanded universe. And it's incredible because you're like, oh my God, you told me this huge complex story like just what through this prism of they drive this way and then they drive back this way. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I think it's he is a real <laughs> master at kind of taking uh, things that are simple and making them complex, mm. and then taking things that are complex and making them simple as well. 
I think his greatest strength is he's a great communicator. And if you watch a lot of his work, a lot of it is based in the ideas of storytelling itself. I think his latest film, 3,000 Years of Longing, it is all about like the origins of storytelling. It's kind of like about those 1,001 nights, those Arabian nights, and kind of uh, synthesizing what storytelling is down to its like core origins and expressing them through like his lavish, inventive visuals. I, I really, I have a lot of respect for Dr. George. Uh, yes, I, I also have a lot of respect for Dr. George. Well done. Yes. And like, you know, thank God we ripped someone away from yeah. the useless world of medicine. <laughs> <laughs> he might have done more good in my opinion. He might have done more good in his current field. But you know, proud of him. He's a good Greek boy from Australia. And I think that's really special. How much uh, was the Greek, I mean, like, mm. you know, you, Greek community, as you said, Greek area, you're growing up, like, you know, the the double Greek mother experience, <laughs> like, how how big was being Greek as part of your identity when you were growing up? Uh, I think it's it's hard to escape. It is It, it was hard to escape. There were points in time where it's, it, I guess it's always been important to me, but what that means has been different. Um, and you know, when I was a really little kid, we lived in Greece for, I think it was about like six months. My parents got work in Greece. My dad's Australian. My mum is Greek and, um, they got a job. My dad got a job at like a university or something. So we lived in Greece for like six months, but it was exactly the right age where I was bilingual growing up, but I would have been like four turning five. And so basically as soon as we landed, within like two days, my English had left my body and I could only speak Greek now. And so when I came back to – we came back to Australia, I was just about to start school and I was put into ESL classes despite like, you know, mainly being – living in Australia. Um, I think it's it's a big part of who I am and part of that would be just like the – connection to my family because I can't it's just it is like the prism in how I see the world like I hear you talk to people on this podcast about like religion being like their kind of like their the lens whether they've lapsed or whether they're still practicing it is like a lens into which they understand the world I think my being Greek is so like so connected to that lens for me like we are not, my family's not religious. We are Greek Orthodox, but religion was not really a big part of my Greekness, more so like it would be a connection to the church, but more so that is a kind of a center point for the diaspora community in which I grew up and kind of keeping the community together and keeping some kind of core value. But my family were, my mum, her parents rather, um, were, they were communists and socialists and stuff. And so they had to leave Greece because of like fascism. And uh, there was a lot of like, you know, darkness in that story for them back there. They're originally from a part of Greece, say is now Turkey, which uh, was 
at the time, Constantinople and Smyrna, which are now Istanbul and uh, Izmir. And they, so they were, their family were refugees from that part of the world. And then they had to come to Greece and then eventually refuge, like, you know, asylum seekers again coming to Australia. Um, like my grandpa's birth certificate, his passport is a country that doesn't exist anymore. It's Asia Minor is like the country that he's from. And so there's a lot of that, you know, it's like, it's this feeling of, um, for me, uh, like it's a term that gets used a lot, like generational trauma. Like those were not my experiences, but it's something that I feel like so deeply in who I am, like living with my grandmother, being like her lineage is who I am. And I feel like those stories are not stories. They're they're real. They're not stories. They're who she is. And I think that's like so core to who I am and like some of the, uh, what is like trapped in me and like who and how I try to express myself. And I think in the last few years, it's been trying to find ways to express that uh, in my voice rather than just like rather than just like saying them trying to find ways to express them uh, so this is probably a good uh, point in the conversation to ask if you have a life philosophy. That's the conceit of this mm. podcast. You know this, Alexi. <laughs> you know that we now live in an age where podcasts have to have a reason to exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the good old days, the Wild West, where it was enough. It was enough that you just you had, had a one. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think I've I've had. Uh, I don't know if I have a philosophy anymore. I guess it is kind of like imbued with like the. Uh, what was kind of instilled in me from my mom and my grandma, my papu as well, and my 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 dad's side of the family as well. They're all very like progressive people. I think they have strong senses of like uh, justice and collectivism and ideas of like looking after people and kind of like keeping together and like community. I think I'm very community minded in that sense. Um, I think. On like a more personal level, uh, I'm a big believer in like positivity and optimism. And that was kind of like a choice that I made when I was quite young. I have this really vivid memory of being about like, I think I was 19 and I was going through like my first really big breakup and I was just so depressed and so like beside myself. I had this one memory of just like, you know, smoking a little bit too much weed And it really sending me spiraling and then crying myself to sleep, waking up the next day and feeling really good. Like it was a really nice sunny day and just being like, oh, okay, this feels pretty good. And I think up to that point, I had had many bouts of gloominess and I still have bouts of gloominess, but I think I was probably more default setting was depressive and perhaps cynical. And I've just had this 
this really strong feeling of positivity on this one day. It was really nice. I remember I just had like had the day to myself. I had the day off and I was wandering around. I went to go to my most sacred place, the cinema, <laughs> and I watched a movie. And it's embarrassing because it's a movie that it's like, if I think about it, it is the movie that changed my life and switched me to this positive, optimistic setting. It's an embarrassing movie. It's a king's speech. <laughs> It was a I mean, king's speech. And I remember, it's an Oscar, Oscar-winning movie. Yeah, but Will, when you're a guy like me, the Oscars mean absolutely <laughs> fuck shit nothing, dude. Oh, no, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying, mate. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to be oh, here for okay. you. I need the support in this moment, but I remember just being like... But was it the a, inspiration oh, of... I mean, the point of that movie, were you inspired by... The movie itself, the theme of the movie about this guy who, you know, had to overcome something. Was it that? Like, I mean, what was the, you know, was it just the fact that this was a feel good story? I don't understand. Like, I want to know what the point of connection was. I actually was. think Do it you? was that it's just a feel good story. Yeah. And I walked out, go, oh, yeah. I feel freaking good today. And then mm. I walked out, it's still nice and sunny outside. And I think that at that point, it was like a, po- it was a choice to go, I think being positive. And really optimistic feels really good. And I like the way that it feels. And I I decided to just go, you know what? This is actually how it's going to be for the rest of my life. I'm going to try and keep this energy. And weirdly, I think the energy that I live with, you know what? Like fucking, it's like 11, 12, 13 years ago that movie came out. I think that is still <laughs> like the energy that I'm living off today is from this one transformative experience seeing a movie, by the way, that I've never seen again. I've never, I've never <laughs> popped it on. I've never tried. I've never really read much about it. Um, well, I mean, if it has such a huge capacity to change your life on one watching, I mean, <laughs> you'd be silly to tempt the fates by going back again. Yeah, what if it starts reversing it? Oh, God, no, I'm back to that depressive state. That's like watching the movie from The Ring, surviving <laughs> it, and then going, you know what, let's put The Ring on let's again. Let's get one more shot. <laughs> I haven't seen The Ring for a while. Well, by the so way, if you've seen Ring 2, that is, <laughs> that is somewhat the plot of The Ring 2. <laughs> <laughs> so okay um i am interested in this though positivity and optimism because like the idea of it being a choice because you do like, i mean you have an energy that is i think you would understand yourself compared to most not like you know there are plenty of other positive people who have positivity as their default setting. But I think you'd probably understand that when people speak of you, it's probably one of the things that they would say that, you know, that you are an optimistic, positive person. That's the energy that you bring with you. It's part of, you know, why people like having you around, but like the idea that it was a choice at some stage, like to decide to lean into it. Was it, has it been hard at points to maintain or yeah, I guess, you know, I do have those bouts of gloominess is kind of the way that I describe it. Um, and it's, you know, when you work in a field of like creativity where there are difficult moments of like where you, am I on the right career path? Am I doing the right thing? You compare yourself to other people and stuff. Um, it can be really tough. But I, I think it's it is weird because I do think when I think about it, it's like I made like the decision to be positive, but I don't know if it was like a choice. I think it was just embracing something 
I get. I haven't really thought about it until you know. Obviously, having this in depth conversation about it, it's like you. It is the embracing of something. It was embracing of something that I feel like I discovered was core to who I am, and then it became listening to that side of my consciousness or unconsciousness more so than the doubting side. The doubting side exists. I'm not a lunatic. Like I'm, I, I do have like the doubting side very often. They do speak quite loud, but I think it is just, um, you know, a belief in, uh, you know, what's that quote? Like the road to yada yada road to justice is long but excuse skews positive or skews to optimism or excuse like to goodness I think that is the kind of I hope is a path that I that I see in this world rather how much of how we go on a day-to-day basis do you think is determined by our attitude towards it so do you see this being something that because I like, I mean, I do think that there are certain situations in your life clearly where, like, you know, I mean, you still have to be able to be critical. Like, you know, you, you can't be positivity can be a trap for if people think that everybody's always doing a great job at everything, and you're like, oh well, this, you know, policeman shot eight guys this week, but he arrested twelve. Let's look on the positive side. That's like, you know, that's a bad way to run society. Mm, yeah, you know? I, I would start looking into those arrests as well. Actually, <laughs> yeah. if he shot eight people, I go, maybe these arrests aren't living up to yeah, what yeah. I think a code of justice and ethics could be. <laughs> I'm positive he's a criminal, <laughs> but. But on a sort of like day-to-day sweating the small stuff sort of basis, do you think that like having a positive attitude to life makes life easier to navigate or is it like, I mean, I'm sure there's traps to it as Mm. well, but I'm just uh, as an overall position, like as an overall setting. I I think it can. Like, I think it does, you know, sometimes it boils down to like that stuff, like don't sweat the small stuff and like kind of enjoy, try and enjoy the things you can and find moments of, joy in the day-to-day and I love about I love about it is it's just trying to enjoy life like I actually think that is quite a, a, a part of my Greekness is like I think there's something inherent in uh Greek people and Greek culture um is this embracing of a lustful life and in trying to enjoy life whether it be food, whether it be art, whether it be conversation, whether it be culture, you know, philosophy, music, it, there is uh, there is something that is inherent, like with that lustful life in like Greek culture. Like if you read Nikos Kazantzakis, uh, like Zorba the Greek or The Last Temptation of Christ and stuff like that, I think a lot of that is like the the ebb and flow of humanity of like trying to enjoy things, but then like the cloud of like duty and responsibility coming over. I think that there's this thing, and I it's a it's a like almost like a Greek joke of like Greeks don't get married, they get worried, and I think that is something that is really key to understanding like who I am and like how I see the world is like when you love something, you love something so deep and powerful. It sometimes stops being a positive, uh, mm-hmm. a, a positive terminology. It starts being like having negative connotations as well. And I guess, you know, growing up, like we said, two strong women, their love was like so uh, powerful that often will be like, where is he? Is he okay? Are you okay? What are you doing? And my mom still is a lot like that going like, I'm worried about you all the time. And like, I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I'm growing up. <laughs> things are, things are often okay. Okay. 
but it's um it's something that I see a lot in me as well sometimes. I try to like try to keep it more on the positive side, but it is uh, it is um it is like complete. It is I think it's core to who I am and like I guess why I kind of. I, I why I see the world in a certain way. And it's weird. Like I think it's something I'm thinking about now a lot because I am I'm in my early 30s now. I will not say my exact age on the podcast because I'm. <laughs> <laughs> I love to keep a bit of mystery about how old I am exactly, but I will narrow it down. I'm somewhere in my very late 20s. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, very, very, very late twenties. Um, <laughs> me too. Yeah. Me too. Very deep into my twenties. Yeah, you know, when you're in this kind of life, brother, the twenties never end. Yeah, they're, they're eternal. Um, but I, I'm at that point in my life where I like, I am probably getting a little bit existential about those things, and I think, um, I think that I've been kind of working through a lot now. Is like, um, I guess it probably would have been like through these lockdowns as well. Uh, lockdowns, like they're still happening, you know, whatever. It was a few years ago, but I'm still trapped there sometimes. Um, oh, I, I mean, I'm <laughs> amazed that everyone isn't. Mm. Like I think the natural – I mean, I am amazed at how we've all gone through this absolute collective trauma that has manifested itself – in like it's affected everything and is still mm-hmm. affecting everything. Absolutely. Maybe not in the ways that it traditionally was, but now it's affecting it in different the ripple effects yeah. of what's happened. And then the collective amnesia around the like everyone's just like, nah, nothing happened. I'm mm-hmm. sure there'll be no further repercussions. Nothing's gonna pop up. I'm reacting in totally normal ways, and none of this has to do with the fact that yeah. what's happening. <laughs> like, I mean, I can't believe we're not still talking about it all mm-hmm. the time. I get why people don't want to, <laughs> but <laughs> I think that's why I still I say I'm in my late twenties because I don't count the last few years. Why would I? That's not part of my life. Count them out. But um, I think there was like my grandma, my yaya passed away in 2019, like just Christmas, just before the lockdowns really. And so um, thank you. Um, I didn't have that. I feel like I didn't really have that mourning period, but I had like, um, but she, you know, she had, uh, Alzheimer's dementia for like the last 10 years leading up to it. So there was like a long morning before that. And I think during that period, I feel like there was almost a point where I lost a lot of who I was because a big part of my life was like, I lived with my mama, yeah, in two sh- my mom didn't move out of home. She moved out of home mm. when my young moved to a nursing home was when she mm. when, when she left home, basically. So she uh, was, I love like, who I was was like uh, very Greek and my, I spoke pretty much fluent Greek um, until she left and her language started disappearing. And with her language, so did my language start disappearing because it was something I wasn't doing every day. And then at that point, it wasn't something I really recognized or understood until she passed away. And so the morning that I had was not just for like, I can't see her anymore. She's not in this world anymore. It was like, oh, is part of me gone? And now I kind of feel this connection is like, well, my yah has left. If my mom leaves, am I still Greek or does that disappear as well? And so I think that's something that I've been kind of, it's a very weird thing to be grappling with existentially. And it's kind of something that I'm stuck in now. So 
my, back then in 2019, my plan was like, well, I'm going to go back to Greece and stay there for a bit and try and like be with my family, reconnect with my heritage and really connect with that. But then that like disappeared and then it disappeared again because I had to eat my savings over those years that I'd made to go on that trip. And, um, it became like a more internal journey that I had to kind of go through because it's something I needed to do at that time. And so it was like, I couldn't even be with my mom because she's like, um, has like health and disability issues. So it was like, okay, well, I can't even go to her during this time either. And she was in hospital during the first lockdowns and stuff. Um, and so it was like such a high stress situation of going like, oh my God, can't even go be with her. I have to talk to her on the phone every day. And so what I started doing was like, well, I'm going to try and cook the Greek food that I grew up with and remembered as a way to kind of like connect into that journey at that time where I was like, how can I feel more who I am and how can I kind of go express who I am more? And I, it's really, it's something that I've... it was so unconscious, but it just started happening. And then it's, I think that's kind of where I'm at now is like this weird existential place where I'm kind of very much between things, between worlds again. And it's, uh, I don't know, I don't even, it's, it's not a complete thought just yet, but it's something that I'm still kind of working through a lot. I'm interested, you've touched on it a couple of times and obviously just then in a very headliney way, which is the role of food in greek culture Mm. so i mean it's almost a cliche right like you know italians and greeks love to feed their children like that was you know one of those things that but there is there is a celebration in in greek food i'm such a huge greek food fan and uh um uh particularly was introduced to greek cakes by uh diony yeah uh, my manager and uh like i hadn't i'd up until that point i'd never really understood greek desserts you know and then suddenly (laughs) now i'm like kind of there's a Mm. greek cake shop near the venue i play in melbourne and during the comedy festival every day i go and get a different (laughs) delicious greek cake but what is the role of food in the Greek culture. Uh, firstly, I'll help explain Greek desserts to you. Mainly yeah. soaked in syrup. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know, right? <laughs> very syrupy. Very syrupy, <laughs> very soaked in syrup. Um, food has been a very big part of my life, I guess, because it is like, it is a bit of a love language. But I would say, like, my Yaya, she, uh, she had a few great dishes that she could cook beautifully. And yeah. they're still like what I think of as like the the like core dishes to me but she did not enjoy cooking very much (laughs) no i thought that was coming (laughs) she did not enjoy cooking she cooked some things beautifully and great and there was like her staples like a set of like five or six dishes Mm -hmm. uh like yimistar which is like stuffed peppers and like dolmathas and uh uh Kefteders, which is like meatballs and stuff, and avolemonol, which is like a soup, an egg sauce uh, soup um, uh, with lemon. That's what the lemonol is. <laughs> if, if I needed to translate, I didn't know if I needed to translate every word. Um, but uh, so it's those kind of things, like really uh, comforting and tasty food. Um, and I, but my mom loves food and loves cooking. And I think that was, it's very much like a way that I kind of connect to her, especially my mom, she has Parkinson's. And uh, so she, her mobility is limited. So she doesn't get to cook for herself a lot. 
But the way that we connect with each other a lot now is either me cooking for her, cooking with her, or if I'm at home, calling her and speaking to her through a recipe and like kind of talking things through to each other about like how we can do that. Um, and my mom also doesn't eat red meat. So it's a lot of the time like trying to reinterpret those things <laughs> and then find new ways to like do a red meat dish and then find ways to do it and perhaps vegetarian for her. And so for her, what was it? I think it was like either my birthday or Mother's Day, perhaps recently, on those kind of days, it'll be like, I'll cook something together with her. And so we made this thing. Uh, it's it's called paputsakya, which means like little shoes in Greek, but it is like a stuffed eggplant. So it's like a hollowed out half stuffed eggplant. And usually it's like stuffed with like a red sauce, uh, kima, which is like a mincemeat, seasoned mincemeat, and um, then like bechamel sauce and kind of roasted because she doesn't eat red meat i just did a complete vegetarian where the flesh of the eggplant that i'd scooped out i cooked that and then turned that into like the flesh that would be oh that sounds disgusting first time i said flesh was normal the second time i said flesh was gross (laughs) (laughs) i was very almost too much wasn't it (laughs) I, I don't know what as happened. well. I'm not even sure why. But one, one was fine. It, was a, but the it became from an accurate description. Just something quite putrid that came out. But trust me, dear listener, it was tasty. Um, and so that was yeah. something that we've been sharing a lot together over the last few years. I think is like, uh, mm. you know, my mom has those same existential problems as well, where she sometimes feels like her connection to her heritage is disappearing because her life has changed and stuff. And so she is probably more connects through music. Like my mom listens to a lot of Greek music as well. And so I think it's like us together. And I think a, a part of it is like because we have a large extended family, but for the most part, it now is it went from three people to now two people. And so to a point, like my mother and I, I can't remember how much I'm talking about my mom on this show, but it's like we have we have um it's almost like we're the only two people in the world that are like each other at a certain point. But I think partly if I'm going back to like the positive and uh, my mom is probably more of a less an optimistic person, more negative person um, in her outlook as well. And so I think a lot of my uh, positivity was trying to find the balance in that and try to balance that out. And I think it's something that I've seen have a like direct impact on my mom to help with her optimism and try and push herself in like optimistically forward uh, as well. And I, I mean, look, I don't want to dig too much further down in this really, but like you just that idea of identity, like, mm. you know, and as you said, like, you know, there were three and there were two and at some stage, hopefully mm. not, you know, like you know, at a really nice stage, but like at some stage it's just going to be one. And like, do you think about how much like your balance and your identity and all those things is just going to be like, it's, it's, it's going to be you to, to pass that on in whatever way you pass that on then, isn't it? I mean, 
I guess that thought has crossed your mind, I suppose. I don't need yeah. to linger in this moment. But. <laughs> yeah, I mean, imagine if you just switch the switch from positivity to like, yeah, you're right. I just start crumbling. Right. And then from then on, and, and, and from this, this is yeah. the this is the, your second King's speech moment. <laughs> ten years on, you're in, like, you're like, the last ten years have been terrible since this moment. I hadn't really thought about it. And then if I can mention it in the middle of what had been quite a good podcast up until that point. And then there was one, but it was only one voice in the podcast and it was Will talking by himself trying to encourage me back up. Um, yeah, it is something I am thinking a lot about these days, I think. It's just, I don't know, like it's not in a negative way. It's just kind of like understanding who I am. And I think at this point in my life, I'm not, I don't think I uh, want to have children, but I don't know. Maybe that answer will change one day. Who knows? So, I mean, in the direct sense, there is... <laughs> It, um, there is like something that I'm trying to pass down as well at the moment, which is like, um, I'm like the one person in my family and in like my direct circle that knows, um, how to like bring the blessing and remove the curse of the evil eye, which is like, it is like a Greek superstition thing that is like involved with greed, jealousy, like negative emotions. And if you like covet someone, that person, like someone, say someone's coveting you or someone is like jealous of you or something um, or curses you, you will have like this migraine headache and it's called like mati, the evil eye. And there's like a blessing that you can say and that you are trained and it can only be passed generation to generation like via, uh, so my yaya taught to me and I can only teach it to uh, a young woman. Like it can only go by sexes and gender, like down the generation. And I'm the only one that knows how to do it. So I get calls, I get text messages like, can you move the evil eye and all that stuff? And so now, like, my niece, she is, like, almost of the age of, like, okay, I can uh, teach her as well now. <laughs> I can teach her. So I think that's, like, once I've done that, then I've got, I just have to t- tell a few other people about movies that they might like, and then there can be none. There doesn't have to be any left. <laughs> my impact is out there in the world. You mentioned film school. So was that always the the aim once you sort of developed a love of movies? Did you suddenly think that, you know, film school was going to be the way forward that you were like, I mean, well, tell us about that. Like tell us mm. about, you know, late at school, what your aims and aspirations were, how you found yourself at film school. Um, it's so funny you say that because I think in, in high school, I like I said, the films I was into was like a lot of like that Scorsese, De Niro, Harvey Keitel, like those really brooding uh, urban dramas. I think it was something I related to a lot because I saw a lot of my world and like, you know, stuff like The Godfather. It's so similar to a lot. Like I didn't kill people and no one I knew killed people, but (laughs) it was what Coppola brought of his own perspective and his own life to those films that enriched them so much. And Greek and Italian culture are so similar. I saw a lot of that world. And I remember watching those movies with my mom. And uh, there's a scene where it's just like a short shot in the wedding sequence where you see um, a young girl dancing with like her grandpa and her she's standing on his feet and his feet are moving. And my mom being like, like feeling emotional, seeing her like, that's part of my life. And I, I, think those were the films I was drawn to and I think there was like that connection there and uh, something I jokingly say a lot like cinema the silver screen 
is exactly that. Sometimes that silver screen is a portal taking to other worlds. Sometimes that silver screen is a mirror reflecting back on your own life. <laughs> and I think back then when I was a teenager, I wanted to be really serious mm. and a really like Scorsese, like down on the streets, be De Niro. But then I was really funny and I was like, fuck, I gotta cut this shit out of me. Why am I being funny? De Niro's not fucking making pranks on set and making people laugh. He's making people feel shit, man. And there was like a certain point where my uh I I, I realized like, oh, actually this is a really big important part of who I am. I think I had stayed like when I discovered like Conan O'Brien and stuff. Uh and then like I I always loved comedy and then it was like a moment ago like, oh, I think this is actually what I like more and what I want to do more. And it was like that shifting of being like, oh, I can use those things and kind of bring them into my comedy perhaps and stuff. And then uh, I remember like I wrote a short story that was like the first time I, I used to love writing short stories because I was still just a little bit too young to have like the video cameras in your phones and all that stuff. And like we had like little cameras, but I, I just couldn't, I, my, I don't think what I want to tell could have been told by like, like I said, I want to make fucking De Niro movies. I'm like a freaking 17-year-old yeah. boy. What am I going to do telling those stories? So I, I wrote a lot. I wrote a lot of short stories. And then I wrote this one short story that was like the first time I was like, oh, I'm writing about who I am. And it's like a funny thing. And it was like about um, this like a Greek kid who was meant to go in the family business, but family business was... Um, like a funeral mortician home. So it was like that kind of thing. I was like, oh, I'm actually expressing myself, not just like uh, saying things that I think look cool or whatever. And then from there, I was working in a little a video shop in uh, Annandale in Sydney, which was a Mondo Movies, which was an art house and cult video store. And that was like probably my first film school was working in this video store and like already being obsessed with movies and like already on the path, already watching all these like American new wave, French new wave, having access to like, I don't know, it would have had like 6,000 movies plus, maybe 10,000 movies in that place. It was really big and like specialized as well. They had everything that you could want. So it was like access to all these things and all these paths and like finding uh, discoveries every time I'd be walking around the shop, like finding something on the shelf. And then from there, there was like, I knew that afters the film school existed and I kind of knew that I wanted to go there, but I hadn't made actual movies. So I did like one year at university and I made a couple of short films there. And they were just like, you know, simple things, almost like exercises or assignments. But there was um, enough in there to get me into film school. And I'm like 18 years old in film school and already like an insane cinephile. So like there would be kids <laughs> yeah. older than me there because it, was, it wasn't just like kids straight from high school. It was, no. uh, you know, there's mature age students there, uh, everything. But because I had like been on like this trip for like the last 10 years of like delving into cinema I was like this ferocious cinephile that would spend like all the time in the library going like whoa there's even crazier stuff in this library <laughs> than there was in the video store and like having these two these two ginormous like caverns of cinema at my disposal and then my own private archive as well that I'm still collecting mm. to this day um, <laughs> which is a merging of those two things basically it was like the I think it's something I've heard you talk a lot about where it's like when you entered comedy, it was like finding 
like-minded people for the first time and like finding those people that uh, understood who you were. I think when I went to film school was the first time I really go, oh, I am everything I'm doing, I'm studying. It's like, it's only the things I care about. It's the only things that I find joy in. And I'm surrounded by other people that are completely like that as well. And we were all intent on discovery and all intent on that. And it was a really creative experience. And I think... It was a couple of years and then I went back uh, and I specialized, uh, not specialized more, it was like I did like a one-year course that was like a, you know, anti-pasto platter or meze platter of like every different aspect <laughs> of film and you kind of find the things that you like and what you gravitate towards. And yep. back then I actually started gravitating towards documentary um, mm. and it was just by like chance. I had a really great documentary instructor, Rachel Landers, um, who's a fantastic documentary filmmaker and producer and she really inspired me to like make these shorts and uh, there was like an observational documentary, which is like more fly on the wall, more common than what you would see on like Australian documentary television stuff. We had to make an observational documentary and then we had to make a portrait documentary, which is uh, an interview basically and a character study of somebody. And I made these two shorts there and the observation was um, like the procession of Greek Easter of like the uh, epitaphios coming out and going around the block in Dalchil, the church that I had spent a lot of time in. And I was like filming the procession. And um, I remember when I brought the film back to her, she was like, oh my God, this is like a Lost Francis Ford Coppola film. And I'm like 18 years old going like, <laughs> oh my God, thank you, thank you. Like, oh, wow, wow, wow. And then the portrait documentary that I made um, – yeah. It was one of my, my mom is a human rights lawyer and mm. uh, an advocate. And she had this client, Edward Young, who the court, the case that she took for him was Young versus Australia. She took him to court with the Howard government mm. um, because he was the first same sex relationship to receive a war widow's or war widower's pension. Because oh, my wow. mom, she worked in veterans advocacy yeah. and refugee advocacy. And um, he was like this fascinating guy. He was like a model in the 1960s in England. And um, he had like all this beautiful ornate furniture. He just like, he was someone that I thought was so fascinating. I remember making, I was like, I want to make this film about him. And I was like asking him all the stuff about the case because that was something that was so important in his life and what he was kind of known for in his later years. But then he had like this little picture in the corner of his room that was like so much beautiful antique furniture. And it was a really strange picture. And it was like this, um, it was like a photocopy from a textbook or something. And it was a picture of a man and Edith Piaf, the singer. And I knew Edith Piaf because like I loved her music and stuff. And I was, I asked him what that was. And then that was this short film where he told this story about um, this lightning bolt of love that he felt. And it was the only picture of this person it was the man in the photo that he felt that love for. And um, it was like this striking moment. And it was one of the, I think Edith Piaf had two boyfriends that had died in plane crashes. And it was the second man was the person that he was in love with. And that picture was the only video, like visual evidence he ever had of this person. So he had like this picture photocopied in a frame. And I was like, I talked to him about that. And, and that became the short film instead of being like what I thought it would be. And I thought I had this love of going like, oh, wow, you can find these stories in reality to tell and kind of like reality is a canvas to like construct a narrative on. 
And so when I went back to film school, like documentary became, uh, documentary and film history became the two subjects that I really gravitated towards and um, I guess specialized in. And then I guess, you know, many senses that's where I am today was because I gravitated towards wanting to make documentaries in a weird way. Well, it's funny because you then kind of have, right? Like, mm. I mean, we, we, we can jump forward a little bit, but, um, and if people want to like hear a lot about that in between time, there is, there is episodes of Faux Fop that you've been on where we've chatted about some of it, but you and Cam James, previous philosophy guest, Cameron James, uh, you and he have done podcasts together, but tell us about how that turned into for people who don't know the story, like, you know, how it turned into you making your own style of documentaries now. Yeah. Well, it actually did begin at film school because the podcast I made, Finding Drago, it actually was my final thesis film at film school. It began as a 12-minute short film that I made in as my documentary major work. Um, and the consulting producer on that was my instructor, Anna Branowski, who is far and away one of my absolute, always has been one of my film heroes. Um, her documentary work was kind of like the films that got me interested in documentaries. She made this film called uh, Forbidden Lies, which is about um, uh, a really this woman, Norma Curie, who wrote this like fake bar, like memoir about her um, – about her life and her name is actually Norma Toliopoulos, uh, no relationship at all. But I remember seeing that movie as a kid because my mum was like, hey, there's these people with our name in this movie. And then be like, whoa, this is crazy. There's no relationship there. Um, but um, And then I remember she was my instructor at film school when I came across the story that would become Finding Drago, which is this weird book um, based on Rocky IV, uh, uh, the film Rocky Four was like this spin-off novel that someone had written about the villain Ivan Drago and like how they humanized this villain and, um, and it caught my attention I found it on the internet and then we had to like present and I, I always want to tell like an investigative documentary like Forbidden Lies like Catfish like Tickled those were mm -hmm. the kind of films I want to do but I could never I, I you know those were just stories that had to come into your world basically and this right. one was that and as soon as I found this I started feeling that pull I was going like oh there's something here and there's a story within me that I want to tell with it and Anna was my lecturer at that time and she was just like, yeah, there's something here. You found something. And she has been very encouraging basically ever since then. And um, the short film that I made was, I don't know if I've ever really talked about it on the record before, but it was probably the first, like, ended up being what would be the first two, three, two and a half episodes of that podcast. It was like 13 minutes long. And then I could, like, I basically, Cam and I, uh, had been making podcasts together at that point in time with like Mic Check and Total Reboot and stuff. And um, I had this story and we had done it a little bit on the podcast. And I made the short film and I was hoping to make it as like maybe I could make it as um, – at that time, the ABC had like a documentary stream for young creatives and Becky Lucas had done one and Reese Nicholson had done one. And I thought, oh, I'm about at the point that they were where I, maybe if I've got this idea, I could turn to that. And then they just killed it. There was no, <laughs> there was no like third generation of that. I was like, okay, cool. So I pitched it to the ABC as a podcast. Mm. And I basically, what I did, 
Um, and this is like how useful film school was for me. I just went to my assignment. We had to kind of write the pitch and did command F and changed every film reference to a podcast reference. <laughs> and, uh, they funded it. They gave us the money <laughs> basically. Cause it was like, you know, a high distinction assignment and it was like, yeah, cool. It's, it's gone through yeah. the rigor. This is, this works. And, um, then we got to make it as a podcast. So it really did begin at film school. It's been the thing that uh, we've been working on since, really. Okay, so you make that as a podcast and then for people who don't, like, I mean, obviously don't give away the podcast, <laughs> but the, it, the story develops into something else, which is what you were saying. It's that whole point of you start out to make a movie about one thing, a documentary about one thing, and it becomes about something else completely. They are They tend to be the best and most surprising documentaries because, you know, there is a, an element of discovery along the way. But then that, I don't know, playbook, I don't want to say mm. formula because formula is incorrect, but that style, you know, becomes something that you decide to do again. Was there trepidation about trying to recapture the magic of like this first experience or – I mean, talk me through that because there must have been – sometimes you do something like that. That podcast series was, you know, almost like a perfect little podcast series. It was well-regarded. It had like an enclosed story. It had a surprising twist. But, you know, the, there's always the M. Night Shyamalan sort of, <laughs> you know, worry that people then go into whatever you make next looking for the twist mm. rather than, you know, going along with the story. So what was the thought process about – doing it all again. Yeah, I. it's interesting you said it because that's how I really thought about it as well where we completed this arc uh, with Finding Drago and I was so proud of it because I was like, oh, we did everything we set out. We made like this. It's the first time I made something that was like, this exists out in the world. People have embraced it. It has connected really deeply with people and it's because it was so honest. Like it was about like finding why I connected to the story, uh, bringing Cameron into that it being like a complete um, expression of everything that I was at the time, you know. It was the humor of Cameron and I and our chemistry together, our love of film and exploring something through genre, you know. Like I was saying before, it's like genre is a communicating to an audience in the way they understand. And we use like the films of Sylvester Stallone as like our genre tool. And his films are like really emotional films. Like they're high-octane sports films. They're thrilling, but it's all about like that emotion. So it was like, I harnessing that. And then it being a story about art and creativity and the subject being someone who ended up being like one of my very best friends in this whole world as well. Um, it being about the expression of one's self and one expressing their art with, through without ego and using like a pseudonym to kind of just like have no ego to do it freely and to it all being like an artistic endeavor and all an artistic project and basically just for art's sake and I, that was something that people really connected with and I, uh, and and is that something that, i mean because that seems that idea before we move on to the you know what it was like to replicate the experience um I find that idea fascinating because I think about that all the time, mm. which is that idea of, yeah, the art for art's sake, the thing you do because it doesn't like, and how important that is. 
I have a friend who I won't even give too many details about th this project because I don't even want to blow up their spot, but they do an art project where essentially the experience is someone is at a theatre, they arrive at the theatre, but everybody else in the theatre doesn't know that the show like so the show's about so say for example you go to this night of this experience but it turns out the entire show was researched about you and is about you oh wow and the theater experience is you in that room having that experience of being in a show that is about you with all the anyway i can't Whoa. i won't give too more but it's because of the nature of it it has to also be this little secret project that like you know, there's no sort of funding model or structure mm. to be able to do something like that without spoiling the surprise of what the thing is. And, and, but it's kind of art for its own sake. Like it exists for that person and that experience in that moment, even though it can't be replicated into a mm. sort of business model in which that, you know, becomes a, and, and I love that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I often say to people that some of my favorite shows, one of the things I love about podcasting, you know, is that, I've had access into these shows where I never look at – I wouldn't know, like, you know, how many downloads or how popular the shows I listen to are. Mm. All I know is how much I enjoy the show that I am listening to and to be able to, like, find someone who was making something even beyond those parameters, like wasn't worried about download numbers or whatever. You know, like you said, art for art's sake, like this weird little contribution to the overall world – that may never be discovered in any sort of meaningful way that then eventually is kind of discovered in such a fun way is anyway, it's, a, it's, I mean, I find that whole thing. You're right. I, I understand why people might be captivated mm. by that story because it, it is a fun part of that story. Yeah. And it was, you know, that's kind of become our intent with those. It's like to celebrate these stories. You know, a lot of them are about outsider artists. Um, you know, the first three things we've made are really about outside mm -hmm. artists. And mm -hmm. it's about celebrating that and kind of like they are like um, – these exercises in empathy and like kind of finding a way to tell those stories. And they are different from those stories because they're, they're not made without ego. Like Cam and I front and center, like it yeah. is from our perspective. <laughs> That's how I make documentaries is like, yeah. it is me finding my journey and my story or Cameron yeah. and I finding our story together or finding what Cameron's story is in them. And we make them like, I don't, my, my creativity is not egoless. It is, it has got a lot of ego. <laughs> my name is in the title for a lot of them as well. Um, uh, but you know, that's, but what we do is like trying to find, those stories and find those examples. And I think trying to like the idea of replicating, there was something like it was, it was a bit nerve wracking because it was like, well, what even doubting, like what were the things that people connected with? Like there was a point in time, like the ABC uh, came to us going like, do you want to do it again? Do you want a sequel? And we found a story and we found like we came across a story quite naturally once again. And it's just like, as you keep digging, you kind of find things that go, okay, there's this here, there's this here. And it's about like, then bring it to, we both now look for stories on our own. And then when we find something, it's about like, bring it to the other person. We're like, Hey, what's here? What do you, do you think that this is a story that we can do something with? And I remember even when we were really having those early talks about how we were going to do a sequel, we'd found the story that we did about um, a Guinness World Record that we thought was fake. Um, and it was in – Cameron had found the story, but it was in my world of it being like, 
European filmmaking. And I was like, I, so it was like a perfect blending of those two things. And I had the idea of like, how do we make it a sequel? Because Cameron and I were obsessed with sequels. We think they're, even if they're crap, there's something so fascinating about like, how do you do it? What are they trying to do? What are they trying to say? I'm fascinated by the idea of sequels. So I became so excited about like, how do we make this actually feel like a sequel to something? And so it was all about completely embracing that and like going, okay, well, we're going to bring in our subject from the first one and make him our Hannibal Lecter. And like, he's going to be our one of our mentors on this because it's all about like taking the elements of narrative and then constructing something that's happened in real life and then translating that into a narrative that an audience can be gripped by and understand. It's so, the way I'm talking about it is so technical for something that kind of is, you know, silly and low stakes, but it's what we do is we take these weird low stakes stories and then take them really seriously and make the stakes really high. I think that's what our, we've kind of synthesized what that comedic philosophy is now, which is like, Drama is people taking things seriously. Comedy is people taking things really, really, really seriously. I think that's kind of what our thing has evolved into. Yeah. I mean, Monty Python famously talked about the idea of the whole thing was if it was an important topic, they'd treat it really silly. Mm -hmm. And if it was a silly topic, they'd treat it really important. Yeah. And that was pretty much that was all that, that was all they were doing and you're like exactly yeah i mean in a way that is the simplicity of it like you know taking something silly and, and treating it with full importance is hilarious as is taking something very serious and treating it with irreverence that is funny also you know and that's where comedy lives in those two places so what about the idea of collaboration so oh, yeah. you talk i think that's interesting because Many of those like documentaries that we think about, those, you know, person forward documentaries normally fronted by one person, you know, this original idea comes out of something that was your, you know, film, but you've opened it up to Cam to be part of this experience with you and then to collaborate with other people throughout the journey, like you said, including the subject of the first documentary <laughs> becomes part of the team going on, joins, mm -hmm. you know, in the Scooby gang. And so it... Uh, like talk to me about collaboration and, and, you know, why that, how that fits into your world. Collaboration is so deeply important to me and so important to like my creative process. I, it is probably the reason why I drifted away from stand-up comedy because stand-up comedy, it's not really a collaborative uh, form of expression. The main collaboration you have is like with the audience. And that's kind of like what I got most out of stand-up. It was almost like playing games with the audience in a way. But I think that was not what I really enjoyed because I think for me, part of like the joy of creativity is sharing it with someone and the idea of collaboration, it's like you have access to a brain full of ideas that your brain can't form. And I find a lot of joy in synthesizing those together to come up with what I would believe to be the best outcome. Like Cam and I working on finding Drago and finding Desperado, um, that was uh, like we have – we're quite similar in a lot of ways, but we fill each other's gaps – Excuse me. Oh, behave. <laughs> um, uh, but we we uh, we are quite similar, but we have uh, limitations, and I think 
the other strengths often kind of fill the other one's limitations. Like Cameron is really like in an edit in post-production, he's really fast. Like he can, he can go, he can watch something or hear something back or, uh, work on something and just be like, okay, here, let me, here's a paper edit immediately and be like, this is it. And it will be, it works. And it's so good. That's like, I'm probably more a slow process person where it's more, uh, like ideas based or like the philosophic, like he, he has those aspects too. And I have, you know, paper editing aspects too, but it's just, like our strength kind of complements the other ones, uh, like complement each other's strengths a lot. And I think that it really boils down to is like, he's got a different brain to me. So why wouldn't I use that to like make something better? And then when we first started collaborating, uh, we would always have other people that would fill those gaps too. Like on the podcast, it was Bryce who had a completely different sensibility to us. Like Bryce Halliday, our producer, he is so different. His comedic sensibility, everything is different to us. And it just helps strengthen everything because it would be like a completely different brain working on them. And now that we've been making them as video series with Finding Jesus, um, Max Miller, who was the director of those, who's Auntie Donna's director, he would bring like a lot of the stylistic things were like my ideas, but then he would evolve them further. And I was like, that's so cool. Like with Finding Jesus, it was always a story that felt cyberpunk. And when we first came out with that story, the first thing I said was like, this is going to be like the matrix. We should make this feel like the matrix. And when we thought of it as a podcast, we're like, it's got to sound like the matrix. How do we do that? And then when it became video, it was like, expressing those and writing those into a script and then Max, the director, finding a new way of like how do we actually make those look and how do we make them feel present while still feeling like artistic and different. And so it was exciting for us to just like bring someone else new in that would help us tell our narrative uh, in reality in a new way as well. So it's all, to me, collaboration is so, um, it's, I, I can't, I, I don't like not having it basically. I love, I love, love, love collaboration so much. Yeah. So films, you know, obviously film sets in particular, you know, you see the list of credits at the end of most movies, like they are collaborations, you know, like, um, often with, you know, like a director getting the majority of the credit, like, and maybe running the show, but they are absolutely collaborations at their best. So it doesn't surprise me that you, that you think that, but also how do you, keep like you know a sense of vision and because of course like you know there is the you know we've all seen things that have been overly collaborative where you think i wish somebody had done their job and actually given this a you know through line and a voice and a personality and an identity so how do you make sure that the identity of what you're trying to do isn't lost in you know collaboration wow that's such a freaking good question (laughs) Um, and I worry, I don't know if I have an answer because I think, um, I don't know. It's something I think about a lot because I am, I guess, a proponent of the authorist theory that film does have a vision, sometimes a singular vision, sometimes a collaborative vision. And I think, um, the identity of the stuff that Cameron and I make together and all my work, I think I have, uh, my voice is unique to a sense, like literally, I know that my voice sounds weird. So I know that like <laughs> to that degree, you will always feel like me. But I think it's like, because what we are doing is emotional and they are our emotions that we're bringing to them. Um, 
I think that's where its identity comes from and like it's our way in expressing them and they are really like these exercises of being really open. Like, you know, we have to reveal a lot of ourselves in telling these other people's stories because we are telling other people's stories. We have to be vulnerable ourselves to be able to tell them because otherwise, like, what right do we have to, like, bring them to life? We have to bring them to life quite gently and lovingly, and they are these expressions of love for these people and their work and, like, that their work has value and trying to, like, share that. So I think because they are quite personal, it's hard not it's hard for that identity to disappear or to be um, – and I think with collaboration, it's it's not like competitive collaboration. It's more like uh, a unified collaboration. We all have like the same goal of uh, making them the way that they should be made and the way they should exist. So I think we while we do have disagreements, um, we've never really had like – fights or anything in them like the disagreements usually there's compromise but when I say compromise it's all about like it's not going like well I think that's bad but I guess we'll do it there's not (laughs) that doesn't exist in the things like we fight for the things that we feel um that we feel work but then compromises are like just coming to the understanding of like okay well how about we do it this way or something um it's so for me, it's always okay. been about problem solving, I guess, like yeah. creativity and filmmaking and stuff. Well, I mean, it's uh, – yes, look, I mean, it's all that. It's hard. It's all problem solving, right? Mm. That, that's that's the thing they don't tell you on day one that they mm-hmm. should just tell you. Essentially, you're a problem solver. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, like certainly most comedy is just problem solving. <laughs> you're just trying to work out how the joke works, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Like how to make the thing funny. And if you think of it from that perspective, it makes a lot more sense. But I just wanted, before I get onto my standard questions, because mm-hmm. I'm aware that we're, uh, you know, on the clock, and <laughs> I um, uh, want to ask you about vulnerability, though, because it's something that's really interesting to me. And I'll tell you a self-deprecating story first, just to set this up. But uh, uh, after my show this year at the comedy festival, my brother, my dairy farmer brother, uh, came and saw the show, as he does most years, very supportive. And, uh, and he said to me afterwards, he said it was, he said it was very, uh, he said it was very vulnerable. That's a good brand. That was what he said. (laughs) It's very vulnerable. That's a good brand. But I do think that I know my own work has become more vulnerable as I've got older. Like, you know, like that, you know, like it just feels ridiculous for me to have the bravado I had when I was younger. But Mm. I also, having watched Cam's, the latest show he's brilliant show about you know the, all the songs you know of being 14 and the vulnerability that was on display in in that show like i thought it was his best like you know yeah. like solo work I and agree. really love that show and it very much was because he tapped into that vulnerability like you know that he was willing to put it out there what what is i can see the upside of the vulnerability what's the what's the downside or is there a downside to being vulnerable like is there is there a chance that you open yourself up to too much or too honestly or Mm, i think there can be there can be where you because sometimes if you put it out it's hard to take back in and sometimes you don't want to and i think it's you know i'm still uh, how you would say emerging in this world. And so it's still like trying to find the level, like what I want to share with the people and like what I need to keep to myself. I'm a big compartmentalizer, I think, uh, where 
there are, there's times where I'm like I can kind of separate these things and keep some things to myself. Like there's some things I don't really talk about, um, but it is – I don't know. It's something I'm still kind of working with because I think I'm still experimenting with it. Um, but I think if it's like – if it's these things, it's like – the way that I kind of understand them is like emotional connection is really important in like whatever you're making that why would you listen to something if you don't feel connected to it? Or why would you watch something if you don't feel connected to it? I think that there needs to be that kind of that point to that access, that relatability. And, you know, uh, when we're making these things like these finding series, we could write it as like an article with a headline being like outside artists found behind major project. But I mean, that's not worth telling. We're telling these stories about, you know, searching and finding these people and eventually it becoming like a portrait of somebody. And I think that, I, I don't know. I think that's kind of like what I'm still trying to come to an understanding of, but I think, uh, that vulnerability is important, but also I don't know another way to do it. Like, I don't know, um, you know, I guess I am like a very like, yikes, an open hearted person of some kind <laughs> um, that I don't know how not how to do the clinical version of those things. And I guess that's why I suck that journalism degree and why I dropped out because I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't know how to do it that way. It's just how I am. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, standard questions that I mm-hmm. ask in every show. Uh, what do you think happens when we die, Alex? Far out, dude. I actually don't know anymore because I think I use mm. I use a terminology earlier. I heard myself say, go, no longer of this world. And I don't mm. know what that means. I don't mm. know. Like I have some – I guess perhaps I'm agnostic in some way because I was raised with some Greek Orthodox, but it wasn't like a doctrine on my life or something. Um, and it's all about like l- trying to enjoy your life while you're here. But um, I don't know. I think I have some spirituality in me that believes that there is more to this world than we understand, really. Like, I don't know if that means heaven or hell, but I think there is something uh, perhaps more, perhaps more. I don't know. I think I saw a ghost a couple of years ago. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I think I had an experience a couple of years ago that I'm like, I don't know, made me, I don't know if it made me question things, but it made me go, yeah, maybe there is something more out there. I mean, there's no doubt there's something more out there. Like, I mean, that is beyond our current understanding. Mm. Like, because the one thing we know about humans is that we know a little bit, but we're like in the grand scheme of things that are knowable, we're we're guessing a lot. Mm. We're filling in a lot of gaps. We're Absolutely. doing a lot of we're doing a lot of hand waving and like, please don't, <laughs> please don't peer into. I mean, we've got a big telescope and stuff. We've run some tests, but like we, you know, we're still quite limited in our overall understanding. But also I think it's some it is hard to be, even though I myself like I guess kind of believe in the idea that we were nothing before and we'll be nothing again after. But but if if that is the case, then, you know, things like movies, things like the arts, things like music and, you know, all these passions and connections, they all just seem so fucking unnecessary for that being the only, like, you know, if we're just this bio, uh, it's so weird that if we are just this like biological fluke in the corner of the universe, 
that they that we also made Fury Road along mm. the way. Like, <laughs> but I guess it is all about trying to understand that. That's what art is. Right. I guess it's trying to understand what is that. And I guess you have like these logical explanations for things, but then there's like spiritual explanations yeah. for things and artistic explanations for things. I go, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just they're all the same shit, and we're just trying to find different ways to understand it. Uh, so if I had a um, magic wand and I could just come down and like, I'm going to give you two magic wand guys. Wow, first one's so pretty simple. <laughs> let's let's just do this one first. Mm-hmm. You can just be immediately good at anything. Oh. So like you know, like you don't have to train to do it. And uh, but just one thing you can be immediately good at. What would you love to be immediately good at? Wow! Wow! Holy smokes! Um, and this is going to happen. If I, if I, um, I think when, when eventually when the questions asked on this podcast become hard and binding law, <laughs> then yes. Sure. Uh, I, the first thing that came to mind was I'd love to be able to speak more languages, I guess. That yeah. was something that came to mind. Like I, That's a big one. Like mm. that comes up, I would say I have not done the stats on this, but I would suggest that being able to speak like various different languages is something that a lot of people really would like to do. Yeah, I would love to watch a French movie without the mm. subtitles one day. <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, that's something I'm trying to do. I'm trying to improve my Greek a lot more at the moment. Yeah. So I think, you know, if I could just click my fingers and then it was there, like, awesome, that'd be great. Yeah, no, I think that's a good... Okay, now I'm going to give you a career one. Mm-hmm. I've got, I'm the career magic wow. fairy. Like, I can, I've been waiting come for you. Down. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, yeah, what, what uh, I, I can give you one special career skill or opportunity or, you know, like whatever it is, you know, you, you, you know, have your career wish. What is it? Oh, my Lord. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I think there's two, like I would love to keep making documentaries and stuff. I would also love to make a feature film. I've started writing something at the moment. Mm. That kind of is a lot of expression of the stuff that we've been talking about in this podcast together. Uh, I guess that's why I'm so existential about it. It's like I felt existential. I started writing and now I'm working in that. But um, I don't know. Part of me, I wish, I guess, like I was saying, because so much of – like I do feel like my mission on earth is like communicating to people about films they love. Part of me wishes that I could have that role in this world. Like, you know, uh-huh. that Margaret and David reboot at the movies, you know, that kind of thing to kind of like help continue the conversation around art in this country. Um, because I think people people need it. People need a little bit of that guidance. There's not really – I don't think there should be a unified voice in art discussion, but I think that um, the Australian media has not given space to uh, – to artistic discussion in meaningful ways that can be accessed by uh, Australians in this in this country. I think it. I think that there should be more uh, space for artistic discussion and examination and celebration, really. And I think it would help our art scene become healthier if we have these these places to talk about them. So why why do you think? Because I'm interested in this, obviously. I mean, and biased, I guess, in at least a way. But like. Why is there no proper 
you know, discussion of the arts really in the mainstream media in Australia. What do you think that is? Because like I'm a person who also loves sports and there are like if I'm like at the moment I like like AFL football and I like cricket and I can turn on television, I can listen to podcasts, I can like see the mainstream press and there are debates around the issues confronting those things on a daily basis. I can access so much conversation around it and yet when it comes to the arts like there's still some level of like you can read some movie reviews or there's that online like but why do you think there isn't like a proper compelling conversation about the arts you know generally in the media and across society why do you think that is uh the political answer would probably be like i actually do think uh conservative governments do not uh they do not see the value in art they do not see expression in the value in expressing uh art and i think they counterintuitive intuitive to like their ideals of patriotism that they try to put uh into the world because i do i said it earlier but i really do think that uh, I'm patriotic as an Australian because I love Australian art and I love like connecting to Australian storytelling and Australia has like a really rich and deep history in storytelling like thousands and thousands of years and I think that art and storytelling is so important to I self-identity and some kind of uh, broader cultural identity. And I think that because the arts have been so defunded in this country and so unembraced that um, there is difficulty in even finding ways to discuss them and like ways to embrace them. And I think you know, there's this idea of cultural cringe in Australia where it's like you can't find something doesn't have its worth until it's seen elsewhere as being chic or interesting or powerful. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is really, but I think those are the elements at play in why, um, we don't have, we don't have those discussions really. And we don't have those bigger places to have them like any, but it also is, uh, you know, that's my the grander scheme thing, but in a smaller scale, I think people's connections with art can be really personal because it is subjective, where sports is probably less subjective. Um, and as a cultural touchstone, artists can be really, really personal. So I think a lot of people go on those journeys in very more intimate ways uh, mm-hmm. and seeking those things out because it's people have their tastes of like what they can go to. And like you were saying, you can go find those on a podcast where it's more direct conversation or you discover things in a certain way so you want to go down those paths. We have great film festivals. We have great artistic festivals in Australia. I think those are kind of like the big examples of where those conversations can happen in a bigger, broader way and those moments of discovery can be in a collective sense. But a lot of times people's uh, quests and journeys of art are very internal and small and personal. Uh, good answer. Very good answer. Big, big question for me to drop on you at the one hour 40 wow. odd mark. But that was wow. a good answer, I thought. Uh, <laughs> this is just a fun hypothetical or a not so fun hypothetical. I know, mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. But I, Kurt Bronola asked this of Pete Holmes on Pete Holmes's podcast. And the question is, would you prefer to know when or how you die? I, I would say when. Because then I have, I can figure out map things out of what I want to achieve perhaps or what I put things into perspective, you know, the how it's like, I can probably guess. (laughs) (laughs) 
That I've got a better chance of having an educated guess on what will happen. <laughs> Uh, all right. Um, I'm going to uh, – what can we plug, Alexi? Let's make mm-hmm. sure that people uh, – finding Jesus, the people can find on the Auntie Donna – what's it called? What's the uh, name? Of the, what's the thing called? It's called Grouse House. It's a Auntie Grouse Donna's House, that's subsidiary right. YouTube yes. channel, which is uh, – it's kind of like Adult Swim for Australian mm. comedy content. So it's like specific, strange, weird Australian content – this is a continuation of some of the stuff we've been talking about, which is these investigations into outsider arts and artists in a very fun and silly comedy kind of way. Uh, and it's about a video game that is based on Kanye West and, and uh, a video game based on Kanye West's quest to become the best rapper in the world that many years after it was released, someone found a hidden level that people believed was a recruitment tool for a new age cult that believes in ascensionism, which is the idea of finding immortality through the internet. And I guess that's what we've discovered on this podcast today. We have found some kind of immortality <laughs> via the internet in some kind of way today. Um, and yeah, Cameron and I actually are starting a new podcast together. We are getting back behind the mics um, to kind of have more silly, fun, pop culture discussions. We used to do a movie of the week podcast, but I think both of us have discovered that's not really the way that we want to keep exploring culture. And we are now doing a podcast called Special Features that the first episode we have just recorded uh, where we caught up with each other and I kind of went through what I think my favorite movies of the year so far are. And it's kind of a way to put some things on your radar uh, and, you know, I guess talk about culture and talk about art and pop culture. Uh, well, people can absolutely check those out and I'm super um, happy that you came and joined me for this episode of Philosophy. Uh, if people like this podcast, it is back permanently now so you can, you know, I don't know, do do all the things that you're meant to do, follow, subscribe, rate, review. I don't mm-hmm. know what you're meant to do, but if you could do those things, that'd be great. I appreciate that. There is a Patreon page, patreon.com slash TOFOP, T-O-F-O-P. Uh, it goes, you get access to all the bonus uh, material from all of the other podcasts, most of which you can find at tofop.com or on the Tofop feed. So if people would like to check that out, that'd be cool. Uh, so Alexi, uh, what is the best or worst piece of advice you have ever got in your life? Oh, I had a wicked piece of advice when I was like 16 or 17 years old that well, it completely reshaped my brain. It was at my cousin's wedding and there was like this drunk guy that I hadn't seen since I was a little kid. And he came up to me and was just like, how old are you, man? And then he said this thing that was so important to me, which was, man, you're only a kid. You're going to get rejected a thousand times in your life, man. Just roll with it. And I was like, and it came true in every sense. And it's like so weird. That guy would have no idea he said that to me. But it's something that I was like, oh, yeah, okay. That's not so bad. I'll get used to it now. <laughs> oh, man, that's the best. Uh, I have a time machine. For legal reasons, mm-hmm. I don't actually have a time machine. But if I did have a time machine, here's what I would offer you. A trip 
a one a round trip. Mm. I need the machine back for the next podcast. But okay. uh, I'll drop it back, go, keep the keys, keep it warm. You can go to the future or the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, firstly, I'd like to know, would your instinct be to go to the future or to the past? Before we get into the details, future or past? I, my instinct immediately was to go to the past, but I don't think mm. that would always be the case. I think um, I have hit that stage in my life where I actually am nostalgic for my own life experience. And like, I think about the past a lot more than I ever have. So I think I, I would go back. Okay, where are you going to then? Um, honestly, I would go back to my youth. I would go back to the video store that I worked at when I was like a teenager. I would absolutely go back there because it's like all I had was the future. I can enjoy where I was. And um, life was simpler. Like the stakes were so simpler. And I I actually think about that video store a lot at the moment. I dream about it. <laughs> I dream about going through those shells. But also, you know, my could, my ER was still around. I really miss her a lot. I would really like to spend more time with her. And I think that's where I would go back to. It's like that, my life back then, just to visit, for to visit. Um, but also, you know, video stores don't exist. It would be so nice just like touch those boxes again. I guess I live in a time machine. I've turned my freaking study into a video store. I've got 3,000 DVDs, Will. I got three. Mm. It's like a. I got more. I have more movies in my home than Netflix has on their streaming service. So I but think I is, live I in mean, the time like, I was gonna say, like it, when the like the web goes down, mm. when the worldwide web gets like, yeah. taken down, like you, your old media will mm-hmm. suddenly be so. Val- it'll be like the days of the video store all over yeah. again. Like. You will be the provider of entertainment to people. And that's when you do get to live your world of mm-hmm. personal recommendation for people. They'll have Absolutely. to come, I would, state their case, state it, their interests. You it is real. Them the perfect movie. Our dear friend, Lauren Bonner, moved into a new house like a couple of months ago and she didn't have internet for a few weeks. She mm. came and borrowed like 30 movies off me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, let me let me go. What do you feel like? I got ten. Let's yeah. get different genres for you guys. <laughs> Alexi's picks. That's yeah, what you I need. went back to my default setting. I missed it so much. I was like, oh, I would love to go back to the video store days. Uh, well, Alexi, thank you so much. What a lovely chat this has been, and I appreciate you doing it. Oh, thank you so much, Will. It was a true. It was really nice to get invited to do this. It was. Uh, it meant a lot. So thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And one more, thank you. <laughs> the first was sincere the last one had a tinge of irony yeah, to save my sincerity that's what I do Will a little bit of vulnerability reality and then the same thing but in a dumb voice to make me feel okay about it so I guess that's my philosophy all summed up <laughs> thank you mate oh boy that was so good, man. Thank you. No, thank really, you. Really lovely chat. I thought it was genuinely. Um, thank you. Yeah, no, it was really nice. God, hey, uh, Mike. Mike will probably be lingering outside the studio right now because normally no they have a um, another thing that they have to get put yeah. in. But I'll um, he'll come in and don't say so, you know. Don't worry, I won't us. hang up. Thank I'm you. not going to reach for <laughs> yeah. it. Start hanging just up. Just don't do that. Uh, okay, <laughs> yeah, just don't me, touch it. Yeah, I'm just you know. going to keep close yeah. on that one. <laughs> and so just unplug this, and I'll walk out and start wrapping the cords up. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, mate. No, thank I'll you. See you soon. Yeah, thank All you, right, mate. mate. See you soon. Bye. Listener.